The proclamation of God's word is on page eight in your bulletin. Our sermon text reading today comes from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your holy name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Robin. That was a, a longer reading than normal. So thank you for doing that well. Back at my old church, there was an older man that I, I really looked up to. He was, he was a simple man. He was, he was a college grad, but after college, he became a shoe cobbler. So a very simple guy, but he was committed to the Lord. He was committed to the church. He was committed to his family. And so this man prayed all the time. He had a, a very big stack of note cards. And so he would go to work every single day. And as he was working on the shoes and, you know, nailing the soles together, he just would cycle through this big stack of cards and just pray for all the various needs that he was aware of. Or when you would visit his house, he had a big lazy boy chair, one of those lazy boy chairs that only a grandpa can have. I mean, it was, just, it was big, it was comfortable, and you could see where the fabric was worn in this chair because this man would wake up every single morning at 4.30 to read his Bible and to pray through his no cards. He just, he was, he was a wonderful man of prayer. And so I, I don't really feel like prayer is, is really my gift. And so every, every time I had the chance to pray with him or even better, when I just got to sit and be the recipient of this man's prayer, I just felt like I was being welcomed into the presence of God. You have this godly man who is sharing his intimate prayers with me. And that's what John chapter 17 is. It's a godly man, and not just a godly man, God who is a man who has given us firsthand knowledge into the types of things that he is praying for. Jesus is showing us how he prays. This prayer is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It is the longest prayer that we have from Jesus. And like we have seen in the past couple of weeks, the, the, the context for this high priestly prayer is that this is happening on Thursday night. And so as soon as this prayer ends, the events of Good Friday are going to be put into motion. These are the final words that Jesus is going to give us from his upper room discourse. And the context surrounding Jesus praying this, it certainly heightens the emotions. Jesus is praying right before he is about to die. Now, if, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, that just, there's going to be some extra clarity to the kinds of things that you are praying for. If you knew with certainty that you are going to die tomorrow, you're probably not going to be praying for your great aunt's neighbor's sick dog. I mean, just, it's never wrong to do that. If your great aunt's neighbor asks you to pray for a dog, you probably should. But if you're on your deathbed 
and you only have a few things left to to pray for, that's not going to be high on your list. You are going to be desperate, and you are going to be praying for the things that you prioritize most in life. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. He is about to die. He is desperate. He is not wasting time. He is not wasting words. Calvin says that this prayer reveals reveals to us the soul of Christ. I mean, here we get to see what does Jesus care most about? What is he asking his Father for? We are being welcomed into the very prayerful soul of Jesus here. Now, I just want to say from the outset of this sermon that there is a lot of content in this prayer. There is way more here in John chapter 17 than we have time for on a single Sunday sermon. So perhaps at some point in the future, we can come back to it. Maybe we can even just do a, you know, a one-month mini-series just on this one priestly prayer. And so I am not going to say everything that is missing or that is here. This is going to be more of an overview of this prayer as we move on in the gospel according to John. But if we were to, to take this prayer, this very complex, this very deep prayer that has lots of different themes and nuances, the overarching principle of this prayer is the glory of the Son to sanctify his people so that they might be sent into the world. The glory of the Son to sanctify his people, to send them back into the world. So we're going to take that main overarching point, and we are going to break it up into three sub-points. So point number one, the Son's glory. Point number two, the sanctification of the Son's people. Number three, the sending of the sanctified people. So point one, the Son's glory. You see in verse one, that Jesus is beginning this prayer by understanding that the hour of his death is now here. And so many times throughout John's gospel account, Jesus has said, my hour is not here, meaning it is not yet time for him to die. That's what the hour is in reference to, the hour of his death. But now Jesus understands the hour of his death is now here. And at the hour of his death, Jesus is praying that he would be glorified so that the Father would be glorified. The glory of the Son, the glory of the Father, they go hand in hand. They are connected. And we see that theme, the glory of Jesus, as being repeated throughout the first couple verses. And now, you might think, Jesus, that that is a, a bold way to pray, to pray for your own glory. And at first, that might even strike you as sounding a tad strange, or perhaps Jesus sounds even a little prideful or or vain here. Why is Jesus praying for himself that he would be glorified? If any other person was praying for their own glory, then you would rightfully accuse that person of being vain. But Jesus, of course, is different. He is not a normal person. So to understand what Jesus is doing here, you need to first understand that the great purpose of the world is the glory of God. That's that's why everything was created. Everything was created to glorify God. It is the fame, it is the renown, it is the name of God, this God who is three in one, eternal in age, simple in being, infinite in beauty and wisdom and majesty, God who is the first cause of all things, 
God's glory is the aim of the universe. And there's a number of different ways that God is glorified. God is, of course, glorified in nature. So you look at a deep blue ocean, or you look at the the snow-capped mountains. And Psalm 19 tells us that all those different parts of nature show us something of God's glory. The intricacy of the human eyeball, or the complexity of calculus, or the wonders of the animal kingdom. Again, those are all different ways that are showing us something of God's glory. But what we are about to see, starting on Good Friday, leading up to Easter Sunday at the death and resurrection of Jesus, these events are going to be the clearest picture of God's glory. God is going to be glorified as Satan is crushed, as death is defeated, as the curse is broken, as God's people are redeemed and brought back by his grace into his family. All of that is going to happen for God's glory. And so when you think of God's glory, I mean, you hear that phrase, especially if you've been around the church, you know, we want to you know, glorify God or God's glory is great. It's, it's, it's sometimes... It can be a little vague, a little confusing. Yes, I want God's glory, but, 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 but what is it? What, what does it mean? It feels a little esoteric. And what we're seeing here right before Good Friday is that God is most glorified at the cross. This gospel story that is unfolding before us. Jesus who will be slain so that sinners might be reclaimed. So God is going to receive glory. God's ultimate purpose in life is not our redemption. We need to make that clear. God's ultimate purpose in life is his glory, but our redemption through the cross fuels that glory. So at this moment on Thursday night, as Jesus is praying, right before he's about to go to the cross, Jesus understands that this moment is by God's design to achieve his glory. That's why Jesus is praying this. And Jesus is committed to God's glory. That's what he lives for, to make much of his Father's name. So the more that Jesus is exalted on the cross, the more that Jesus receives glory, it fuels the greater glory of God. So this is not Jesus being vain. This is not Jesus being proud. This is simply Jesus being committed to what is the very best in the universe. Now, vanity, by definition, is to to celebrate or to exalt something that is meaningless or hollow. So, when I think of a vain person, the, the first thing I think of is the bro athlete, from high school, and so he's a linebacker on the football team. If you're a millennial, you'll call him a bro. If you are Gen X or older, you probably call him a jock. There's different terms, but I think we have the guy in our mind. This guy, he's the linebacker. He's super jacked. You know, he has frosted hair, and he has a spray tan. I mean, just a, just a total bro. He is acting like he's God's gift to the football team. He is God's gift to all the women at the school. He's just, he thinks he's the real deal. He wants to be glorified. But the problem is, is that everyone can see right through him. I mean, he is not 
all that he claims to be. He, he probably is actually a very weak, insecure, and desperate young man that is overcompensating for his own internal weaknesses. He is projecting something that he is not really. That, that, that's what vanity is. Vanity is to promote something that is hollow and meaningless. Therefore, whenever we glorify ourselves, we are vain because we are promoting something that is not ultimately lasting. But Jesus here, praying for his glory so that the Father might be glorified, is not vain because he is promoting the truest substance of all time. He is promoting the gospel of grace that fuels the glory of God. And so Jesus, praying for his own glory, is actually great news for us because God's glory includes our redemption, which leads us to point number two, which is the sanctification of the Son's people. So what we see here in this prayer is that God's glory is demonstrated at the cross by drawing a people out of the world. He is drawing at the cross out of the world a sanctified people. So the great end end of the universe is the glory of God, but God is glorified as he draws people out of the world. And so we're picking up in verse 6. We see that Jesus has not come for the people that God has not given to him. And so this, this can be hard to sort of wrap our minds around, but Jesus does not minister to all people in the exact same way. Yes, God loves the world, that's John 3.16, but Jesus has come to minister to a smaller subset of people. Jesus is not going to die for everyone. And in this verse, or in this prayer, we see in verse 9, that here Jesus is specifically praying for this smaller subset of people. So again, this is not a broad, universal, for the entire world kind of prayer. This is a very specific prayer for Jesus's people. And how Jesus is praying for his specific people is that they would actually be changed by his grace, this glorious grace, which is the purpose of the world, that this smaller subset of people, these people that belong to Jesus, that they would actually be changed, that they would be sanctified by his grace. Verse 14, that that since we belong to God, that his grace is going to change us so that we look different than the world that we have been called out of. The church, Christians, ought to look different than the world. We are called to be a counter-cultural movement. We have a different Loyalty, we have a different set of norms and values. We even have ultimately a different law. We're people that are to think differently about morality. When the world looks at the church, they ought to see people that are sanctified. That's what Jesus is praying for in verses 17 and 18. For the sake of God's glory, Jesus is praying that you and I would be sanctified. Now, I, I, I have no way to to ultimately prove this without doing a a, a massive study, which I have no time to do. But my sense, again, this is just my sense, maybe it's just the world in which I live, but my sense 
is that in the broader church world, there has been an increased awareness on the dangers of legalism the past 20 years. That, that's great, and I, I celebrate that. There, there were a number of church youth groups in the 90s that, that made it sound like as long as you don't swear, as long as you don't drink, as long as you don't smoke, and as long as you don't sleep around, Jesus loves you, you're a Christian, you're all, you're all set. Now, that, that's terrible. That, that is legalism. That is self-justification. And so if there is a spirit of that in any of our hearts, then we want to, to kill it. We are not saved by our works. We do not want to be self-justified. But my fear, what has happened, is that, as, as I say, the, the, the baby has been thrown out with the bathwater. So in this spirit of anti-legalism, there are many now who are anti-holiness. You know, say, you as a Christian, you ought to be a holy person, or you ought to pursue personal holiness. Just sort of, you know, raised eyebrows. I mean, holiness, isn't that mean your legalism and trying to earn your salvation? But it, it doesn't have to be, and that's, that's what we see here in John 17. The root of the word sanctification in Greek is the word hagios, which is simply the word for holiness. And so being sanctified by God's grace is the process of becoming holy. So yes, of course, there are a thousand different ways that people might abuse this and it might become legalistic, but you just can't throw out the term. Jesus is praying here that you would become more holy. And this isn't the pastor, this isn't the church, this isn't the Presbyterian denomination. I mean, this is Jesus himself praying that you would become a more holy person. So you have the, the glory of God is connected to your own personal holiness. Jesus, for the sake of his own name and for the sake of his own reputation, Jesus cares about your holiness. He cares about how much you drink on a Friday night. Jesus cares about the kind of shows that you are currently watching on Netflix. Jesus cares about how you are spending your money. Jesus cares about how you interact with your parents, how you interact with your kids. Jesus cares about telling the truth on your taxes. He cares about your sex life. He cares about your inner thoughts. Jesus cares if you are following the law according to what he has said in the scriptures. Jesus cares about your holiness. Jesus is praying here that you would grow in holiness, that you would become increasingly more set apart from the world in which you have been called out of. Now, yes, of course, you are never going to ultimately be a holy person. I mean, if the, definite, if the standard is God's holiness, you're never going to get there. We get there, and that's why primarily we are a repenting people. But even more so, as we are repenting, we are also trying to take God at his word to grow in holiness. Again, this would be a, a much longer sermon series, and perhaps we'll do that mini sermon series after the John 17 sermon series, and so I'm just adding sermons to it. But when properly understood, growth in holiness is not legalism, but actually growth in grace. And for the sake of the, this morning, as you are growing in your own sanctification, you're actually answering the prayer of Jesus. But we'll come back to that in a moment. The third and final point, the son's sending of his sanctified people. 
So while Jesus is praying here that his people will be sanctified, that we will be set apart, that we will be holy, he is not praying that we would be removed from the world, but he is praying that we would be sent back into the world. Get that from verse 18, and in the same way that Jesus, as a righteous man, was sent by God, sent into the world with a very specific purpose, a specific mission, in a similar way, so now are we, those that are saved, those that are being sanctified, God now wants to send us back into the world with our own sense of mission and call. Our sanctification is not being removed from the world. That's the mistake that so many people make. You know, if, if, I, want, if I want to be, a, if I want to walk with the Lord, if I'm going to be a, a righteous man or a holy woman, I, I got to stay away from that crowd. I got to avoid the culture. The, the, the culture's bad. They're going to bring me down. Culture's going to hell. You know, so I, I just got to, you know, step away from it all. And, and that's not what we see here. No, Jesus is saying, if you are being sanctified, I want to send you back into the world. I want to send you into business. I want to send you into education. I want to send you into politics. I want to, I want to send you back in so that you might influence some people and influence institutions, perhaps even start some institutions. I want to send you back into the neighborhoods. I want to send you even, even to the, the hard neighborhoods of Detroit, the rundown neighborhoods. I want to send you into the hood. I'm going to send you into Sterling Heights, into West Dearborn to plant churches, and I'm going to send out missionaries to every part of the world, to every single tongue, tribe, and nation. Jesus is praying here that we would be sent back into the world to do good so that God might be glorified throughout the earth. Jesus is praying that we will go into the world. We are not saved to remove ourselves from the world, but we are saved to be saved sent. You know, think of a, a crazy cult, and so you have some, you know, nut job that has, you know, a vision while he's smoking weed, that he's, he's the next Jesus, and so he, he buys a compound out in the woods. All these people move in, and they uh, listen to this, this nut job, and he, they, just, they just wait until the end times comes. Of course, they, never, they just wait forever, and it ends up usually pretty bad. I'm not saying any Christian would do something, I hope, at least that crazy, but I do think that that type of thinking can creep into our thoughts. Just have a little church compound, all my Christian friends, all my Christian family, it's safe, it's easy, there's no cost, it'll make my sanctification a lot easier because I'm not tempted by the world. I wanna be involved in church life, I wanna be involved in my campus ministry, I wanna be involved with all my Christian friends so that functionally we have a Christian compound. But Jesus is is very clear here. He is not praying for our removal. He is praying for us to be sent back into the war. You see, the the two things that Jesus is praying for us here is that we would be sanctified and that we would be sent. And with, with those two things, our sanctification and our call to be sent, Christians often make two opposite errors. The first error is the desire to be sent into the world, but to be sent not as a sanctified person. So you're in the world, you know lots of people, and you're very familiar with the culture and what's cool, what's entertaining, and how people think. But sadly, there's, there's 
nothing different about you. We don't want to be sent into the world just as Christian weirdos, you know. I mean, we don't want to do that. We want to be normal people, and that might be a good word for for some of you here this morning. We don't want to be weirdos as we're being sent in the world, but as we go in, our call is to look more like Jesus than to look like the world. If everything about your life looks just like the culture, then there is no desire for anyone to change. You're, You're like a dull knife, or you're like a, a hammer that's missing the handle. You're, you're sent into the world as culturally relevant, but to be unsanctified is of zero use in the kingdom. Why is anyone ever going to want to change if they don't actually see change in us first? So that's the first there, to, to, to be in the world, but to be in the world not as a sanctified person. The opposite air is to be committed to sanctification, to be committed to your growth and holiness, but to completely remove yourself from the world. Again, just those people are bad, the culture is bad, I just wanna remove myself, just wanna hang out in my, my, my holy huddle. You know, th- this error usually does not involve necessarily sinful things. It's, it's never wrong to be around your, your church friends. It's never wrong to be around the church family doing redeemer-type things. But Jesus is praying here that sometimes you would deny some of those good things so that you might be sent on mission into the world. Think of Jesus. Jesus gave up the ease and comfort of heaven to be sent into the world to engage us, to save us. And so it makes sense then that we as disciples of Jesus will often be called to sacrifice our own comforts to go on mission, to be sent into the culture. Just maybe as a a quick point of application that you could maybe do this afternoon, just just take out your iPhone, look at your, your schedule for the month of February. And if every single night of the week you have something that is focused on Redeemer, I would encourage you to change that. We do not want you doing every single thing that Redeemer puts on. We want you to often deny Redeemer things so that you might live as a sent person in the city. Here at Redeemer, we have very basic desires for what we are asking of you. Number one, we want you to come to church every single Sunday. So that is without exception. That's mandated by God. Come to church, worship Him, confess your sins, hear a sermon, partake in the Lord's Supper. Do that. Number two, not with the same force as Sunday morning, but our strong encouragement would be to join a small group. So come to church, join a small group. Then number three, carve out lots of extra time so that you might be sent into the world. You know, you just saw that this morning that we are a growing church. We have new activities, we have new events, we have new ministries, and of course, partake insofar as it is helpful. But, but I also, I give you permission as the senior pastor of this church, maybe even more than just my permission, my, my strong encouragement, do not do every single thing that Redeemer has to offer because we would rather you obey Jesus and go and be sent into the city. To get really involved in your neighborhood, to help out with new city kids, to join some non-Christian discussion groups around the city, to hang out with your coworkers, join a book club or a political club, 
join a basketball team. And, and, and when you join those teams, don't just be around. It's easy just to hang out with your friends after work. But when you are around the city and around the culture, be around like you are being sent by God. Jesus is praying that you would be sent into the city with a specific mission to glorify God. You can't just be around. You can't just be relevant. You need to be sent with a mission. There is no hope for the world if there's just worldly people living in the world, nor is there any hope for the world if there are holy people removed from the world. Jesus is praying here that his sanctified people might go and be sent back into the world. And again, remember the the context here. Within just a few hours, the events of the betrayal and the death of Jesus are going to be put into motion. So Jesus, this, this is not a light moment for him. These issues are literally deathly important for him. When somebody is on their deathbed, they are praying things that they prioritize most in life. So this idea of God's glory your sanctification, you being sent, these are deepest to the heart of Jesus. As Calvin said, we can learn a lot about the soul of Christ here. What what, what are we learning about the soul of Christ? What we are learning is first is that Jesus is absolutely committed to God's glory. So committed that he is going to do the hard work of sitting through a trial and being nailed to a cross. He is going to bleed. He is going to die. He's going to be resurrected so that God might be glorified. And as Jesus is doing all that, dying and being resurrected, he is doing it so that he might be calling out of the world people that are saved by his grace, a people that are so saved by grace, a grace that is so pure and so free and so God-centered that it actually transforms us that transforms us so that we no longer look like the world, but actually look like we belong to God. And as we look like we belong to God, again, God's glory is fueled. And as we look like God, as we look like Jesus, we will look like our Savior who was sent into the world. So Jesus is praying that we would be sent into the city to do good, sent into downtown, sent into the hood, sent into every sphere of the culture. God is glorified. When we take hold of his sanctifying grace in such a deep way that we are compelled to be sent into the city. So glorify God by seizing his sanctifying grace so that you might be sent on mission back into the city. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this this prayer. I can recognize and confess the limitations of one sermon for this most majestic and wonderful prayer that your son has given us insight to. And oh Lord, while there would be much more that we could talk and discuss, I do pray for this, that you would help us to be sanctified. If there are secret sins or there are different things that we are holding on to tightly, if there are ways that we are stubborn to your grace, Lord, we ask that your grace would overcome it all and that you would soften our hearts and that you would grow us one degree of glory at a time so that we might reflect your son all the more. And as we are being sanctified, Lord, we do pray as a church that you would send us into the city to do good, to engage people, to engage culture, to engage institutions. You know that the culture is dying and your word is life, and it would be our great honor if you would use us to bring the word of life to many. So, Father, for your great glory, we pray for our sanctification and we pray for our sending. In Jesus' name, amen.